and welcome to Kerrang! Back Issues. I'm your host Stephen and this week we'll be looking at issue number 561, September the 2nd, 1995, £1.50. pence. They've put the price up by 5p, those bloody swines. If this sounds at all different, that's because I'm coming from a new HQ. Yes, I moved this past weekend. I know that's not very interesting, but my god, it moving is the worst, isn't it? Because you think to yourself, okay, I'm just going to move some stuff from one place to another. But it takes you about two weeks to pack up your house and, you know, sort all of that out. And then it takes you about another week or two on the other side to pack up, well, sorry, to unpack find homes for everything, paint, you know, sort all the crap out that you have to. God, it's tiring. It's really tiring. Um, I was considering trying to get this issue out maybe later on in the week, but then, I, you know, I've got to get it out on a Wednesday, right? So I'm sat here surrounded by boxes, just taking a little bit of time to myself to do this podcast just for you, the listener. So I hope you bloody appreciate it. If you'd like to get in contact with us here at Kerangback Issues, we can be contacted via Instagram, Kerangback Issues, Twitter, Kerangpod, and email Issues at gmail.com. And I just realised that I've read out the contact us bit before I even talked about this week's issue of the podcast. So the cover stars, it's all backwards, isn't it, this week? The cover stars for this week's Kerrang! are Foo Fighters. We ain't no baby Nirvana. Foo Fighters, Reading's hottest band, Shake Off, Cobain's Legacy. Metallica, Secret Gig and LP Exclusive. Chili Peppers, first new LP review. Free cassette offer. Terrorvision, Fear Factory, Type of Negative, Silverchair, Mannix, Green Day Therapy and Skid Row Dates. Let's begin this week's issue where we always do with a swift word from the editor. By the time you get your mitts round this issue of Kerrang, the mad weekend will be over and you'll just be coming down. Your tent may never see another year of active service. Your grass-stained sleeping bag is still soaked thanks to that bottle of Carlsberg ice that your mate spilt on it during White Zombie's set. And you're still wondering who it was who tried to slip their tongue into your mouth at 3 o'clock on Friday night after you found that funny cigarette. Yes, you're still reeling from the bank holiday beano of Reading and Donington. If you went to both festivals, we hope you don't feel as rough as we do. If you only went to one of the festivals, then we hope you only feel half as rough as we do. If you didn't make it to either, then hopefully next year will provide you with as many opportunities for excess and excitement as this year. As far as both festivals are concerned, you'll find full reviews of them and all the behind-the-scenes action you can handle in next week's issue. In the meantime, get away from it all, wrap yourself in the giant poster that you got free with this issue, creep into the spare room and have a quiet lie down. God knows, if you're in a similar state to us, you need it. Phil Alexander, editor. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Bad news! Bad news! Bad news! Mayhem, the loudest news first. Terrorvision and Manic Street Preachers will join a host of other top British rock and pop acts on a special charity album. Proceeds from which will be donated to the War Child organisation to aid thousands of children in war-torn Bosnia. The album entitled Help will be recorded in a single day on September the 4th and will be released through Go Discs on September the 9th. All of the bands involved, Help will also feature contributions from Blur, Oasis's Noel Gallagher and Paul Weller, Suede, Portishead, Boo Radley's Naina Cherry, The Charlatans, Chemical Brothers, The Levelers and Radiohead will lay down new tracks in a mere 24 hours. The Mannix's contribution is an acoustic cover of Raindrops Keep Falling On My Head, which James Dean Bradfield will record in a French studio. Terrorvision, meanwhile, will donate a new as-yet-undecided track. The Vision are now in the studio with producer Jill Norton working on the third album. The album's sleeve notes have been written by ex-Nirvana bassist Chris Novoselic, a native Bosnian, while Stone Rose's guitarist John Squire has designed the sleeve itself. Help was conceived by Go Discs' Tony Crean and Music PR's Terry Hall and Anton Brooks. We originally talked about doing a live gig, says Brooks, but working out the logistics and fitting into a band's schedules was impossible at such short notice. The plan to record an album in a day was inspired by a quote from the late Beatle John Lennon, who said that his classic Instant Karma track had been written, recorded and mixed in 24 hours. Stop Press Nailbomb, the sideband put together by Sepultura's Max Cavalera and ex-Fudge Tunnel mainman Alex Newport are set to release a live album in October. It was recorded at the Dynamo Festival earlier this year. Stay tuned for further details. 
The Flaming Lips will support the Red Hot Chili Peppers on their UK tour at London Brixton Academy October 3rd, 4th and Manchester Apollo on the 6th. The Lips' new album Cloud Taste Metallic will be released on September 25th. Candlebox will release their second album Lucy on September 25th and Red Cross have just started work on their new studio album in LA. Stone Temple Pilots bassist Rob DeLeo is producing more cross news soon. Manic Street Preachers guitarist Richie James is feared dead by the police chief who's leading the search for him. Detective Sergeant Stephen Morley told the Sunday Times at every street corner there is potentially a Manix fan who would recognise Richie. It was not as though he was just an ordinary unknown who has disappeared. He has drawn no money since he left London's Embassy Hotel six months ago, nor asked his parents for any. In these circumstances, I have to move towards the theory that Richie is no longer with us. Since the search for Richie began, the police have investigated a handful of reported sightings, but none have proved to be conclusive. The police have followed up every lead they've had, reveals the Manic's manager, Martin Hall, and their investigations have brought us no nearer to knowing Richie's whereabouts. There's been a lot of media speculation and rumours flying around, but the facts are that since Richie walked out of the hotel on February the 1st, he hasn't contacted anyone and there have been no 100% positive sightings of him. The remaining Manics, vocalist, guitarist James Dean Bradfield, bassist Nicky Wyatt and drummer Sean Moore have now decided to resume work on the follow-up to The Holy Bible, which was voted Best Alternative Album at the Kerrang Awards. We've sat down and discussed at great length whether to record or not, explains Wire, amongst ourselves and with Richie's family, and basically decided we would uh, have to have a go. We're just going to get into the studio and see how things go. There's no rush. We've been rehearsing regularly for the last few months and have over 20 new songs which have been written over the past year. The last six months have been very difficult for us, but we feel ready to start recording. The Manics have no plans to release any new material or play live this year. Bradfield, meanwhile, is also currently producing Manchester Noise Merchants' Northern Uproar. Smashing Pumpkins will release their new album, Melancholy and the Infinite Sadness, at the end of October, and they've blasted British rock bands. The music scene at the moment really fucking sucks, spits guitarist James Iyer. There's some good new bands, but there's a lot of shitty, horrible bands around as well. The big trend in the US now is to sound like Nirvana. Most of the things on the radio over here just follow that formula. Offspring have one song that sounds exactly like Teen Spirit. That is just so ridiculous. Bush, I really don't want to slag these bands so I have no comment to make on Bush. In the UK, there doesn't seem to be any individuality, Aya continues. They're all almost trying too hard to sound English and everyone comes out to the States going, we're better than any US band. I don't understand that predictable imperialistic bullshit. I've never heard menswear or Jean, but I know from their interviews that they're just desperate to be pop stars. Thing is, they aren't saying anything that hasn't been said a thousand times before. They flirt with bisexuality and all that crap. You know, fuck off. Maybe they do write songs, but if they concentrated more on just being a band, they wouldn't get slagged off every time they come to America. The Pumpkins, meanwhile, completed work on Melancholy with Brit producers Flood and Alan Mulder shortly before headlining the first night at the Reading Festival and playing two nights at Dublin's SFX. The album, which features a mammoth 28 tracks, is roughly split into two distinct halves. Overall, the rock stuff is on the first CD, explains Aya, but it's more vibey, there's no overdubbing. The second CD shows the more eclectic side of the band. It's got the electronic songs, the acoustic songs, the singer-songwriter stuff. The band completed by Billy Corgan, Darcy and Jimmy Chamberlain are keen to follow their experimental side. I think the rock side of the band is going to change, nods Aya. We're getting older and it'd be ridiculous for us to keep writing these mega rock songs. There's nothing wrong with Kiss doing it, but we couldn't. Billy wants to go more electronic, maybe quieter. There'll be more acoustic songs, not to say we're going to wimp out, but maybe uh, do it like Neil Young has. Lyrically, Aya says the album focuses on alienation and despair as usual. Although he adds, Billy wrote most of the lyrics though and I don't like to talk to him about them. At present, the quartet are back in the US preparing for upcoming American and European tours. We're working on expanding the whole thing, reveals Aya. We're going to add a keyboard player and maybe look at embellishing a few things. Iron Maiden will release their long-awaited new single on September the 18th. Titled Man on the Edge, it's the first Maiden release to feature new singer Blaze Bailey who replaces Bruce Dickinson. Maiden bassist and linchpin Steve Harris describes Man on the Edge as up-tempo, in-your-face with a great chorus. It was written by Blaze and Janet Gears. It's classic Maiden with great vocal. Man on the Edge is lifted from Maiden's new album The X Factor, which will follow on September the 25th. The single will be in the stores for just two weeks and is available on CD, CD Digipack and 12-inch picture disc. 
All formats include The Edge of Darkness, also on the album, while each format features an exclusive bonus track, Judgment Day CD, Justice of the Peace Digipack and I Live My Way 12-inch. The CD formats also feature a Blaze Bailey interview. Stay tuned for full album details next week. Silverchair, the hot teenage Aussie sensations, are currently outselling Michael Jackson in the US. The trio's debut album, Frog Stomp, was certified gold for sales in excess of 500,000 copies within six weeks of it going on sale. As Krang went to press, it had risen to number 17 on the Billboard chart and is set to sail past the platinum mark 1 million sales. In addition, the band Daniel Johns, Chris Jonu and drummer Ben Gillies have had their new video tomorrow on heavy rotation on the influential MTV. Remarkably, Silverchair are yet to tour the US. They're due to go over there in September, says a spokesman for their UK label Columbia. Once they actually start playing there, we're hoping they'll go through the roof. As it is, Frog Stomp is currently selling more copies per week than Michael Jackson's hugely hyped history set. Frog Stomp will be released in the UK on September the 11th for a full review of the album, turn to page 44. Records News and Cable issue their debut single on the Infectious label on September the 4th. This is titled Blind Man with Hydra on the 7-inch and CD versions and Give Em What They Want also on the CD. China Drum, the frenetic alternative rockers, issue a new single Fall Into Place through the Mantra label on September the 4th. The band will be appearing with Ash and Manchester in the City on September the 4th. Flaming Lips, the hot American foursome, issue a new album via Warner Brothers on September the 25th. It's titled Clouds Taste Metallic. 454 Big Block, the US hardcore outfit, have just issued an album titled Your Jesus through Century Media. Opif, the Swedish majestic metalers, will issue an album titled Orchid through Candlelight on September the 18th. Paradise Lost, the hot Halifax doom metal act, issue a single titled Forever Failure through Music for Nations on September the 25th. Originally heard on the band's latest Draconian Times opus, the track has been remixed by Brian Yu. The B-side will have two new songs, Another Desire and The Fear. Tour news and Babes in Toyland, the all-girl squawkers play London Hybrid Garage on September the 19th. The Babes will issue a new single, We Are Family, a reworking of the Sister Sledge song through reprise on September the 4th. Cathedral, the UK Doom heroes follow the release of their latest album, The Carnival Bazaar, on September 25th with the following dates. Glasgow Cat Whiskers, September 26th, Hanley Stage, 27th, Buckley Tavoli, 28th, Manchester Hop and Grape, 29th, London Marquee on the 30th. Support comes from Londoners Mourn. Catherine Will, the fast-rising UK band, will be playing the following dates. Portsmouth Wedgwood Room, September 19th, Hanley Stage 20, Glasgow Cat House 21st, Sheffield Leadmore 23rd, Leeds Duchess of York 24th, Manchester Hob and Grape 25th, Bristol Fleece and Verkin 26th, London Highbury Garage on the 27th. The band issue a new single, Judy Staring at the Sun, through Fontana on September the 18th. Frontline Assembly, the Canadian industrial giants will be playing a show at London Astoria on October 29th. They will be supported by Sheep on Drugs and Cubanate. FLA will issue a new album Hardwired on November the 9th, preceded next month by the single Circuitry. Head Swim, the Essex Noisemongers play London, Camden Palace on September the 5th. Mayhem America, the hottest US news as it happens. Starting this week with Don K in New York. Iron Maiden's new album, The X Factor, will be released through CMC International, home of Warrant, Slaughter, Overkill, etc. in the US. Although Maiden's following has diminished considerably over here, they still have a large enough audience to make this the North Carolina-based indie label's biggest release. Saigon Kick, who've been missing, presumed dead for more than a year, have also signed to CMC. They return with a new album, Devil in the Details, on October the 3rd. Among the tracks set for inclusion are Killing Ground, All Around, Edgar, So Painfully and Eden. New York-based shock radio host Howard Stern recently began touting rising LA sensation Sugar Ray when he learned that they've been performing their own version of Psychedelic B, a song Stern wrote when he was 12 years old. Indeed, when the band rolled into town the other week, they popped up on Stern's morning show, bulldozing through the song live. Fast rising US punk crew Wax, 
who uh, quickly became infamous for their California video which featured a burning man running around for three minutes have pulled out of their support slot on the Catherine Wheel Tour. It's rumoured that they've ejected lead singer Joe Sib. Stay tuned for more news soon. US News Extra Green Day's contribution to the Angus film soundtrack jar is rapidly becoming the most played song on US modern rock radio. Woodstock 94, the event which featured Metallica, Red Hot Chili Peppers, Nine Inch Nails, Green Day, Blind Melon Live and a host of other superstars, still hasn't made a profit despite blanket TV coverage in the US. Nine Inch Nails, meanwhile, will kick off their six-week US tour with David Bowie in Hartford, Connecticut on September the 14th. Trent Reznor's crew will open the show and then play a special set with Bowie. We now join Lisa Johnson in LA. August the 5th. Did you know that it's the shared birthday of Beastie Boy Adam Yonch, uh, aka MCA, Foo Fighters Pat Smear, L7's Jennifer Finch and Wall's Al Block. Coincidence? Notice how their last names all end in five letters? Five letters on the fifth, it gets weirder. Yonch, Finch, Block all play bass in their bands and although Smear plays guitar in his band, he's quite capable of handling the bass. Plus, the Beastie Boys have toured with L7, who have toured with Wall, who have just toured with Foo Fighters. Wow. Lay awake at night wondering what Blind Melon's B-Girl is doing these days. Well, after warming our hearts in the band's No Rain video two years ago, Little Heather DeLoach, now 12, has appeared in three films, Camp Nowhere, A Little Princess and I'll Do Anything, and had a cameo in Weirdo Yankovic's Bedrock Anthem promo. But you won't find her listening to Blind Melon's latest soup. I'm not an alternative fan, she told Entertainment Weekly magazine before revealing that she prefers salt and pepper and TLC. Let me tell you, I have my knickers in the twist about this upcoming recording. Meatloaf and Sammy Hagar, hold me back. Hagar wrote Amnesty is Granted for Loaf to record for his new album, which is due in November. Hagar then took a break from the Van Halen tour to meet me in a New York studio to lay down some backing vocals and guitar on the tune. Yummy. Beaver, <laughs> you've never been to a concert in your life. Shut up! Concerts, and what a concert we begin with this week. The first concert reviewed this week is Metallica, supported by Corrosion of Conformity at the Astoria 2 London on Wednesday, August the 23rd. This one is reviewed by Mike Peake, and no surprises, this one gets electrocution out of 5, 5 out of 5. It starts, the intro tape, that intro tape, and... Ennio Morricone's classic still sends shivers down your spine. You look around, there are a few thousand people tops, there's Ricky Warwick and Andy Cairns, and on stage, there's a big thick fog of dry ice, a bloody great white drum kit, and in mere seconds, the first Metallica gig in a year. The first Metallica UK show in two years, and fuck me, you're actually going to be able to see them. Jesus. The intro tape's still going. Thoughts about Donington rattle around your head. We are nearly dying with expectation. Then it happens. Kirk and James are hammering out the rift to Breadfan. Jason Newstead stomping around the tiny stage. And Lars, God bless him, is pulling his funny faces and whopping the shit out of his skins. They're straight into Master of Puppets and you pinch yourself to check that you really are here. The ludicrousness of the situation is incredible. The last time you saw Metallica... Were you close enough to appreciate the full hilarity of Jason Newstead's daffy hairdo? Close enough to smell what James Hetfield's just had for his tea? Close enough to feel like you're actually in the same room as one of the biggest bands in the world? Bugger me if you couldn't poke Kirk Hammett in the eye if you wanted to. Pre-Donington reports that the band are a tad rusty were patently bollocks. Tonight, Metallica are as rusty as a brand new galvanised nail, dipped in varnish and wrapped in an airtight box. If you can imagine such a thing, they tear through wherever I may roam like they could play it blindfolded. The god that failed, we do that in our sleep, mate. The heat is unbearable. It has been since the rather excellent Corrosion of Conformity set which began at an ungodly 7.30pm. Temperatures get infernal, we fight fire with fire. Hit the lights, welcome home sanitarium, for whom the bell tolls, creeping death, harvester of sorrow, sad but true. One, the majestic seek and destroy two new songs and tons more. The newies, which you'll no doubt have heard by now if you went to Donington, just shred. The first title 2x4 or something is the grooviest Metallica have ever gotten and the second, possibly called Devil Dance, kicks like Eric Cantona. Everyone in here tonight will still be boasting about this phenomenal, ultra-intimate, unforgettable gig 
in the year 2000. So would about 20,000 others. Metallica at the LA2. Yeah, yeah, I was there. Buddy, you probably weren't. We were, and it was fucking sweet. The next review this week is for Fear Factory live at the Compton Terrace, Phoenix, Sunday, August the 13th. This one is reviewed by Max Cavalera, and this gets a high voltage out of 5, which is a 4 out of 5. I was honoured to be asked by Kareng to do a review of the Fear Factory show. We found the band in their dressing room. The security guy stopped us and asked, who are you? I said, we're the Lost Tribe of Israel, man. It's about 10 minutes later that they go on stage. Dino asked me to introduce Fear Factory to the crowd. So I introduced my old friends to the fans in my new city and the show starts as intense as fuck. Kicking from the start with Flashpoint and Demanufacture, they move to self-biased resistor to keep the wheel spinning and cutting. The mosh pit gets to the possessed phase where you know that if you're in there, you're in for some serious, brutal, corporal therapy. I love to watch that shit. The next song is Replica, which is slow with a lot of jumping on the stage and on the crowd. The security guy tells me, you gotta move back, with the typical redneck cop attitude, so I had to watch the remainder of the show from the corner, but I could still see the band tear the place apart. Their next song was an agnostic front cover, a heavier than fuck version of Your Mistake, and after that, Marta, from their first album, Soul of a New Machine. It was very fucking impressive. Fear Factory's biggest song of the day, as far as the crowd reaction goes, they finished with Scapegoat, the show ending perfectly with a vibe like Mad Max, the desert winds blowing dust around. It was great to see Fear Factory in an open place like this. The next day, I invited them to a barbecue at my house. I had a contest with Dino, my Brazilian barbecue against his Mexican-style barbecue. Dino won. So this next piece in concerts isn't actually a concert review. Well, it kind of is, but it kind of isn't. It's basically Steve Albini posted his thoughts on Lollapalooza on the internet, and then Kerrang have just... Um, published a little bit of it. I'll read the intro that Kareng writes to explain it. As Lollapalooza 95 drew to a close in LA with whole smashing pumpkins and the Jesus lizard among the attractions, the controversy raged on stage, off stage and on the internet. Famed producer Steve Albini posted his own thoughts on the rock and roll circus onto the net, which were translated by Kevin Roberts. So I'm just going to read this to you because I thought it was really interesting. Steve Albini is a very, very, very interesting person. I think I follow him on Twitter now and he is always quite right on and I generally agree with most things that he says. Uh, he's always been a very, very, very cool guy. Anyway, now that participants are discussing the flaws in this spectacle with much of the emphasis on how revolting the conduct of everyone involved is, can I be the nth person to ask what the fuck did you expect? Most folks who have ignored this ridiculous rolling frat party since its inception long ago recognise these flaws. The bands involved are behaving in a particularly perverse fashion, embracing this offensive industry marketing tool as some kind of scene. It's singularly weird that participants include established bands and others who have every reason to be secure in their place in the milieu, who seem genuinely surprised that the thing has turned out to be a perversion of a perversion. If you choose to fuck a pig in the ass, don't complain that your dick smells like shit come morning. A further degradation is that the band seem to be mitigating their disgust with an appreciation of how well they're being paid. If the band wanted to demonstrate support for what remains a thriving underground despite attempts at buying it wholesale, they could do much better than playing back up to a wet t-shirt contest and gloating about how well it's doing by them. Any attempt at casting the participants of Lollapalooza 95 as part of a scene is patently ridiculous, since none of the bands on the bill have anything but a historical association with the independent bands. They have no substantive effect on the event, the crass marketing that surrounds it or the superstructure that supports it. At least they are learning that they cannot, by their mere presence, change anything, no matter how they regard themselves or the music they play. Unflattering behaviour all around. It is an audience milking sham and it sickened me. I'll be glad when I don't have to make excuses. Trying to maintain the pretense of irony in their participation, asking what's wrong with playing to a lot of people. These are intelligent, perceptive people who lend their names and their art to a hog-like spectacle. I will be glad when it goes away. Strong words there from Steve Albini. So the next concert reviewed this week is NoFX live at the Limelight Belfast on Tuesday, August 22nd. Reviewed by Paul Brannigan, this one gets an electrocution out of five, five out of five. 
It takes gigs like this to remind you just how much fun punk rock can be. Tonight was a get the beers in, pogo to your legs drop off kind of evening and a feel good riot from start to finish. Total Chaos certainly lived up to their name. Epitaph's punkish crew gom out discoversiest free called rumble rhythms this side of the exploited while a stream of stage divers surf out on the massive energy waves. Unite to fight a non-conformist or as subtle as a Doc Martin to the skull, but boast infectious air punching choruses which take up squatters rights inside your brain. Guitarist Germ and vocalist Rob Chaos look like hell's hardest residents but earn big respect for condemning macho bastard bullshit in the pit, a Mohican mongus performance. No effects, have the crowd eaten out of their hands, they supply everything you could wish for from your punk heroes. Zippy melodico, skanking reggae beats, surreal song intros, a vomiting drummer and a free CD as you leave. Value for mayhem indeed. The guys are feeling below par, but you never guess it to listen to them. Punk Guy and Anonium are speedy, spiky and savage, and the renamed Don't Call Me Shite explodes like eggs in a microwave. The sweaty, smiley people stomp along to the bruise as Fat Mike passes around the bushmills and Eric Melvin bounds about like an epileptic Zebedee. You guys are as hard to understand as the Scots, laughs Fat Mike, as no effects departs the thunderous applause. Maybe, but we understand a great gig when we see one. The last review this week is Ash, live at the Astoria 2 London on Friday, August the 18th. Reviewed by Ray Zell, this gets high voltage out of 5, 4 out of 5. It was hot, murder, people melt, but the eagerness for the arrival of Ash was unbound. Bassist Mark Hamilton appears first, writhing in apparent constipation for his impromptu solo bit. Next thing, drummer Rick McMurray is nestled on his perch and guitarist vocalist Tim Wheeler whacks that bastard guitar. Kerrang! Really? Ker-fucking-rang. Gorgeous. And the bass? It must have took a ton of bisto to get it that thick. No lumps either. While McMurray, solid as a frozen turd on the pot, adopts an expression closer to one swatting over an exam, nostrils flared to prevent specks sliding off sweaty schnoz, the little punk's a star. The lights pulsate to the buzzsaw groove, rumble and spillage. It's just like the MC5 and Nirvana did happen, my one and only gripe being the glaring contrast of Wheeler's weedy vocals amidst the delicious din. But hey, if these Emerald Isle whippersnappers can contain this kind of muscle as a trio, it's no wonder comparative creaking old pros, the Wild Hearts, have opted to magnify their raw elements. As material goes, I only knew that latest single thing which they played third song in, but I still love her, the girl from Kerrang! Big Guitars, plugged in from Mars. Watch out world, the brats are armed. Funny, Ash's 94 mini LP trailer came in the post the following morning, a record that, had it arrived on time, I would have played to death as research. Still, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Besides, it's more fun to name the planets. Next up in Kerrang! we have this week's cover stars, Foo Fighters, Punk, Pop and the Holy Grohl. Never mind the bollocks, they've just fried Redding. They're the Foo Fighters, the hottest band on the planet. But main man and ex Nirvana right Dave Grohl can't be bothered with all that music biz bullshit. Stevan Chirazzi heads for Detroit to find out why. Let's be honest, none of us expected the Foo Fighters to be quite this fucking good, did we? See, old Dave Grohl was a bit of an unknown quantity when he was in the most passionate, most brilliant band in the world during the 90s. So when the ex-Nirvana drummer formed a new band called Foo Fighters, let's be honest, we all wondered exactly how much he really could do. Answer, a lot. Everyone from my three-year-old son to Kerrang editor Phil Alexander to my local coffee shop manager loves to jump themselves stupid to Foo Fighters. If MTV were to have a video of theirs to play, every teenager in the world would be Foo Fighting. Soon they'll have their chance. When a video for I'll Stick Around, shot recently in LA, will be at last be given to video stations. Quite simply, the Foo Fighters' eponymous debut album is the sweetest ear candy since Nevermind. Understandably, Grohl is at pains to avoid such comparisons. So, too, is Foo Fighters guitarist Pat Smear, who played alongside Grohl Cobain and Chris Novoselic on Nirvana's final tour. But hell, there's no denying it, Foo Fighters is the most singable, danceable and jumpable album since Nevermind infected a generation. Dave Grohl has done all he can to stop people thinking he's milking the Nirvana name, the Cobain Connection. He played every instrument on the Foo Fighters record himself, 
He recorded quietly and without fanfare. He avoided mouthing off to Rolling Stone and other such internationally statured music mags on the release of the album. He steered clear of any media aiming to generate another generational hero. And he really doesn't talk a whole lot about any of this even now. The album came out with major distribution through Capital, but on a label called Roswell Records. And Dave Grohl has since toured the US and Europe with the wide grin of someone having a fucking good laugh. St Andrews in Detroit is a grungy little hall. It reeks of alternative and the trim balcony that goes around the rectangular dance floor has doubtless seen some amazing divers in its time. It always amazes me how many of the kids that come to see Foo Fighters have Nirvana shirts, observes the band's publicist Anton Brooks. Pat Smear slouches on a stained sofa in the huge upstairs backstage area. Oh, I'm hating everything, he sighs. The shows are great, but everything else sucks. He stops and chuckles. Nah, I'm only kidding. It's been great, but I just like to complain. Complaining sort of fun. Drummer William Goldsmith is wandering around in a Melvin's Fiend Club shirt and Dustman-style bright orange trousers. He's either on the cutting edge of fashion or he's dressed disastrously. It's tough to tell. Dave Grohl is downstairs doing a sound check. It is the first time I've seen him up front and strumming a Les Paul. He looks comfortable. Very comfortable. He cranks out ACDC Shake a Leg. It's low key, no fuss, but significant in terms of the sheer energy the band cook up later on stage. Hey, he yells out when we meet upstairs. How's it going? Hungry? There's some great pit of sandwiches here. Jennifer, Grohl's significant other and her family are from here and they bought them for us. Compared to so many of his miserable, whining or drama-seeking peers, Dave Grohl is pleasantly mellow, relaxed and excited. He does, however, appear a little perplexed at having had a Rolling Stone writer on his ass for four days trying to pin him down to talk about Cobain. Grohl refused. Indeed, Grohl is happy to chat to most people, but is reluctant to do taped magazine interviews. People forget there's still a lot of pain there, sighs Anton Brooks, and although Grohl never says it in those terms, it's obvious. Says Grohl of the Rolling Stone reporter, he was a nice guy, but he just kept saying to me, I'm online here and I've got to ask you about Kurt and that stuff. And I kept on saying to him, well, I won't talk about it. I mean, it's very uncomfortable, that stuff. I tell Grohl that the album has, whether he knows it or not, the same kind of vibe and excitement in its grooves as Nevermind had, irrespective of his own involvement with both. I know what you're saying, but it's just his voice trails off. Let's just say, I hope not. What Dave Grohl means is that he's not interested in seeing a zoo again so soon after his last trip to one turned dramatically ugly. Grohl is determined to keep Foo Fighters moving smoothly along, playing shows, letting the album time release itself as organically as possible, avoiding the hype without saying too much. Anything more seems scary to him. Being able to have a booking agent who can get me shows like tonight, get us paid and get us enough money to go on to the next show in a day is just awesome, he says. It's enough right now. I mean, what more could you want? Capitol Records are bemused that Grohl won't do a single official interview for the album right now, but then they've got the dollar signs before their eyes. Anton Brooks and Foo Fighters manager John Silver recently had a series of meetings in the Capitol Tower in LA and their explanation of the slow and easy build-up of the band's career wasn't exactly received with flowing joy. But Grohl remains adamant that the band be left to develop at their own pace. It's strange Grohl shrugs, but this whole tour has felt like the first part of the Nevermind tour. The spirit, the atmosphere, we're even playing the same venues most of the time. It is obvious that even in saying this, Grohl feels somewhat uncomfortable simply because he's touching on that N-word. But he seems to accept that his immediate life will be a series of comparisons until the fuss and furore dies down. Grohl remembers clearly the time when Nirvana's fame went out of control, when he realised that life wouldn't be normal. It was on the Nevermind tour and I used to room with Kurt, he recalls. One night I really wanted to get some smokes, so I was stepping out to get them from downstairs when Kurt laughed, no no, we can call and have somebody do that now. We both knew how absurd it was, we all did, which is why we were always doing things to drive people insane, like absolutely going out of our way to do the exact opposite of what anyone asked. Taking it as a challenge, we did that for at least a year. If there's one thing that's obvious about Dave Grohl, it's that he has absolutely no interest in cashing in on Kurt Cobain or the Nirvana legacy. There will be no Nirvana covers in the fighters set, there have been no sob story interviews and the sight of a tape recorder here would be taboo. Indeed, the word fear creeps into the mind many times when Grohl is scrutinised. Fear of huge success. Fear of being viewed as an exploiter. Fear of the media's desire to create another grunge icon. And fear of losing that wonderful, almost naive innocence and sense of fun which Grohl is enjoying right now. 
When Foo Fighters take the stage in Detroit, they deliver one of the greatest sets I've seen in years. Just like great live punk rock should be. Every tune is a bit faster than usual, fireworks fly abundantly in this 1000 degree plus sweat box. It's 50 minutes of the purest, rawest, catchiest entertainment you will see anywhere this year. Dave Grohl is a legend in the making. His natural synergy with a guitar is amazing, and his energetic explosions are wild fits of enthusiasm. I thought we were extinct in 1995 and banned by the Call Brigade. The show is everything that made punk rock great. After the gig, Anton Brooks makes sure that a four-year-old kid named Angelo gets to meet Grohl and gets a shirt signed. Angelo has a set of drums and sometimes plays them for six hours a day, his parents proudly announce. Grohl chuckles. That's a lot more than he ever did. And anyway, as a kid, Grohl was a guitarist. Ultimately, the real magic of Foo Fighters is their simplicity. It is punk pop power at its finest. Yes, it is frustrating that Dave Grohl doesn't want to record interviews, but so what? He's refreshingly happy, and the fact that he's not spewing superlatives all over anyone's tape recorder is weirdly cool. Because with Foo Fighters, what you see really is what you get. Communication, and the letter of the week this week begins... Has anyone else noticed that EastEnders slapper Bianca sometimes wears a Skunkanancy t-shirt? Not the best advert for their forthcoming album, although not as bad as getting a drummer who used to be in Weedy Scarborough Rockers Little Angels. Going back to EastEnders, nasty piece of work Liam sometimes wears a ministry t-shirt. Perhaps he likes torturing people as much as Al Jorgensen does. What next? Blossom and Jules slamming at a biohazard gig. Big Rum joining Poison Idea. The Mitchell brothers revealing that they are in fact Nelson. John Bon Tempe, Albert Square. In answer to your opening question, yes, we have noticed, so we're keeping this week's Karen Camp for our prize. Editor. This is an open letter to Bleeding Hearts Records in Newcastle. Could you please release our second album entitled Technicolor Vomit Jet, just in case you forgot, sometime this century? We mean, it was only recorded in early June, so maybe we're rushing you a little bit. Still, a November release seems possible now we understand. November when? 19 fucking hundred and 19 fucking nine. Swamp Walk, somewhere in England. Leafing through issue 559, I came across a letter from Sue Driver, which was titled Take That Kurt. In a letter, she wrote about how in Germany they have phone lines to help fans get through Robbie Williams' departure from the group. What I want to know is this. Why didn't we get any helplines when Alec John Such left the greatest band in the universe? I think Bon Jovi have carried on brilliantly without him, but I don't think they will ever be the same. When I went to see the band in June at Wembley, I thought they played an excellent show, but when they played Living on a Prayer and Keep the Faith, it didn't feel the same without Alec. We love you, Hugh, but you'll never be Alec. Lindsay from Beckles. Gagging for a shagging. It just has to be said, I'm hopelessly in love with Skin from the amazing Skunk Nancy. She's the most gorgeous stud in the universe, hands down. Skin, my saviour, my darling, I love you. Sarah the Skunk Girl from Hawley. We just had to write to say how fucking amazing Therapy Television and the Almighty were at Tea in the Park on August the 5th. They all got the crowd moshing, especially Terravision. Thanks to Terravision and Therapy for taking the time to sign our t-shirts. And thanks also to Ricky and Pete from the Almighty for signing autographs as well. Come back next year, Nicola and Angela from Alva. Tea in the Park, amazing. Putting it on the telly, wonderful. But what sad, boring motherfucker decided on the pish acts that were shown? Only three good bands, Skunk and Nancy, the Almighty and Therapy, were given song slots. Why the fuck did they omit Terrorvision? They were the best of the fucking lot. But instead of giving us some footage of the mad antics of Tony and the boys, what did we fucking get? Shitty Kylie Minogue and the bloody beautiful Don't Think So South. So on behalf of all us disappointed Scottish moshers, a big fuck you bastard to Scottish television. We know where you are, beware. Mosher, queen of the sweaties, Cumbernauld. Sun, sea, sand, surf and reef all on Fistral Beach, Newquay, Cornwall on Thursday, August the 10th. Thank you, Reef. I was blown away. Amy D from Berkshire. Ill communication. The posters in this week's Kerrang! are of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, White Zombie, Ash and Down. Now, I like all of those bands, yet none of them were deemed worthy enough to appear on my teenage bedroom wall. Next up in Kerrang! we have the Kerrang! interview. 
sit on my lap. So says Man Mountain Typer Negative Leader Peter Steele to a trembling Jason Arnott. A strange request indeed from a fearsome sexist bastard who's just got his knob out for Playgirl magazine. Come on, sit on my lap, booms massive type of negative frontman Peter Still with a thunderous slap of his knee. We're about to be photographed for that little interviewee and journal pic that always, well when we remember, accompanies the much feared Kerrang interview. Yours truly declines and makes some excuses but does not leave. This is just one example of the way Pete Steele throws people off balance. The Brooklyn Giants' entire career has been dogged with controversy. From his days in dodgy hardcore troupe Carnivore, with songs like Male Supremacy, to the allegations of racist and sexist lyricism that still cling to typo. Peter Steele has to be the most irony-soaked American alive. You're constantly kept on your toes trying to detect his ultra-dry humour and his stony face does little to help. The difference this year is that type of negative are finally big news. Through touring America with a perseverance worthy of White Zombie, No Rest for the Wicked and Wicked We Are Chuckle Still, they have managed to shift endless copies of their noble 93 epic Bloody Kisses. Still admits to being shocked unless he's bullshitting again. Bloody Kisses has a dark gothic air. Isn't America supposed to want street reality? Peter Still. I don't know. I'm not saying anything against realism in music, but maybe people just need something completely different as a break. Maybe they also need that type of music as a break from us. The press have either attacked you or imposed an unofficial typo ban. Has anything changed? It's quite the opposite. A couple of years ago, when we had particular problems, I felt poked and prodded like a scapegoat. Now Peter still is suddenly spelt with a dollar sign. Some of the people who had given me a hard time and tried to get the so-called truth out of me now come with a firm handshake and a smile. But if they want to be my friend, fine. I'll get my revenge by living well. How do you feel about having been labelled racist and sexist? Great! It sold us a heap of albums. I certainly did not want that reputation, but I think negative publicity sold a lot more albums than we would have ever sold. But now it's fine. Weren't you asking for trouble with ditties like Jackhammer Rape? Oh, definitely. I know what the public's tolerance level is and that uh, things can be taken two ways. Sometimes I like to push my finger through a hole to see what's on the other side. Sometimes it gets bitten and comes back bloody and infected, but now I've got a new finger and it's very big. It's amusing how people panic when confronted with something outside the norm. Anything that's different has to be locked away so it can't reproduce. I like to make head spin and I do it really good. Indeed, but isn't it easy to upset people? Definitely, but I like to do it in a semi-subtle way. I'm not going to run down the street naked and covered in blood. I'm not after shock value anymore. Maybe I'm getting too old or my testosterone levels dropped, but I think I made my point. I proved that the average person is like a monkey in a tree. Go boo and the thing will shit all over the place. Hasn't your love of irony given you the image of a charlatan who shouldn't be trusted? As you know, all men are liars. Ask any woman and she'll tell you, and I'm a really good liar. But anyone who claims to be a liar shouldn't be believed. The last time I interviewed you, you claimed with a completely straight face that Bloody Kisses was an abomination and that you were deeply depressed about it. I was lying. Seeing as Bloody Kisses was a dr drastic turn away from the hardcore of Slow Deep and Hard, will the next typo album throw a similar curve? Big dilemma. A lot of fans are expecting something different while others want more of the same. I could easily go either way, but I'll just follow my heart. The songs could be long or short. It could be rap, blues or East Indian. It will depend on what I've had to eat that day and who I spend the night with. Where does your interest in gothic stuff come from? Seeing as you're from Brooklyn, aren't you supposed to be getting into fights and throwing bricks around? I wouldn't say it was gothic exactly. I always liked horror films and monsters. I had five sisters and my ambition was to scare them to death. I would set traps for them. Even as a kid, I wanted to make people react by doing something shocking. I would stay under a bed for hours waiting for a sister to come along so I could grab her ankle. I'd put my hand in ice water too. All that stuff is definitely one side of me. But like anyone, I've got many sides. I live for passion. The thing I look forward to in life is being with a woman that I care about and having a sexual experience. I live for the moment that feels like two candles melting together. Your songs are full of cynical views of women, particularly when it comes to fidelity and trust. I know you're fucking someone else, for instance. 
It's not just women, it's people in general. But I can only talk about my trust with women because I have no use for men. I sign contracts and I'm forced to trust people to a certain degree, but I have no passionate relationships with any men. That's not part of me. You can take my bank book, I'll get over it. If you take my heart, I won't. Let's have the bank book then. I don't have anything in the bank. Good luck. But couldn't you understand why your lyrics could be seen as woman-hating? I can see that on Slow, Deep and Hard maybe, but if I was a woman and I'd use the words prick, cocksucker or bastard, everyone would go, oh you poor thing. But because I'm a male, there's a double standard. If I was a homosexual, I'd be using the word prick too, and that would also be okay because I'd be a minority. When you get screwed over, you don't think, right, what are the politically correct adjectives I can use now? When I find my girl in bed with someone else, I think, that fucking cunt. If a girl finds her boyfriend in bed with another woman, she thinks fucking prick. It's not sexist, it definitely is derogatory stuff, but I can't help what I am. If anyone was born into my shoes, they'd use the exact same words. So do you have perfect love at the moment? I'll never have perfect love. The only people I love right now are family members. Not romantic love, of course, but I feel like a rape victim right now. Not in a sexual sense, but socially. I've been vivisected and everyone suddenly wants to know everything about me. The record company likes to use any facet of my life to gain press. The only respect they've shown me was about six months ago when my father passed away. I called Roadrunner and told them that if they told the press or used it to sell records, I'd fucking strangle somebody. It was not a publicity stunt. It was really hard because I was on tour with Pantera when I got the call. After he died, I went back to the tour and the audiences was full of screaming maniacs having a great time when all I could think about was what happened. I was going through the motions, but that's part of life. Everyone has to go through it. What about your recent appearance in the US edition of Playgirl, where you rock out with your cock out? What possessed you to do that? Not ego. I think more people think I'm ugly than pretty. Originally, they asked me and a bunch of other rock and roll idiots. It was going to be me with my shirt off in a special rock issue to give the housewives of America something to masturbate over. But then I was offered $2,000 to take everything off and be on the cover. I had only one stipulation, that I had to be erect. There's nothing at all exciting about a flaccid penis. It's a fucking shriveled mushroom boiled in butter, and who cares? It took a little effort to maintain an erection for 14 hours, thanks to a glass rod, only joking. So you did it for the money? Yes, which we spent on new equipment and a backdrop, but it was also pouring the foundations of my future. I'm hoping to get into movies or something, just to see if I can pull it off. Maybe I'll do some runway modeling if I can find a pair of high heels big enough. Next up in this week's Kerrang! we have singles, and the singles this week are reviewed by Jason Arnott. The first single reviewed is Fish with their single Just Good Friend. This gets 4Ks. A re-recorded version of the tune from Fish's early 90s album Internal Exile, now featuring a duet with Flash in the Pan pop dolly Bird Sam Brown. It's one of the strongest songs from his solo catalogue pondering a should we or shouldn't we relationship, the plucky Scott triumphs. China Drum with their single Fall Into Place. This gets 3Ks. Whip snapping power pop stuff with all those chords we know and cherish. China Drum still have a name that makes them sound like mid 80s dinosaurs, however, so this is bound to count against them. No effects with their single We Ain't Shit, Drugs Are Good, and this gets 4Ks. No effects return with a delightful picture disc and two previously unreleased tracks. Both were recorded in the same sessions as the LA Lummox's Punkin' Drublink LP and both managed to not sound entirely like outtakes. We Ain't Shit sees the boys slag themselves off, we're a professional disgrace, while Drugs Are Good speaks for itself. Red Hot Chili Peppers with their single Warped, this gets 4Ks. The Funky Monks return with a great racy riff sounding like Rage Against the Machine on uppers and almost exactly like a head swim riff. Bizarrely enough, a suitably lively comeback track, this will be the opening track on the new album One Hot Minute. P is another album track lasting a mere minute and 48 seconds. It's vaguely reminiscent of Mellow Nirvana, except for the fact that it's full of abuse. Sugar Ray with their single Mean Machine, this gets 3Ks. A rollicking excerpt from the band So So Lemonade and Brownies debut, Mean Machine lives up to its title, mainly aping Biohazard pretty well, but the US bunch are better at erotic LP sleeves than music. 
Silverchair with their single Tomorrow, this gets 2Ks. Tomorrow is the tune that broke Silverchair in their native Australia. Strange, it's the least impressive tune that otherwise proficient youngsters do. Grunge by numbers. Slayer with their single Serenity in Murder. This gets 4Ks. The A-side is a brilliant moment from the Divine Intervention album, featuring a Lane Staley impression from singer Tom Araya. The live B-sides however lack intensity and are hardly the best moments from Slayer's repertoire. Everyone should already have the B-sides on this too, so that's something of a waste of time. And the single of the week this week is Stem the Slide Filter by a band called Reverse. Oh, this one gets 4Ks. Who the fuck are Reverse then? They're from Stoke and this is a bit of the old power pop stuff. Bad religion style. It's rough around the edges, but so what? Good vocal melodies and some of the best chord changes around make Reverse that rarest of commodities. A band releasing a smart 7-inch is almost enough to make me buy a record player again. For further info, contact PO Box 695, Stoke-on-Trent, Staffordshire, ST46AG. Metallica, the new album exposed, Crunch. That's the sound of the new Metallica album, loaded with aggression, groove and attitude. Stefan Chirazzi gatecrashes the band's San Francisco studio to get the full scam from guitarist Kirk Hammett. Yeah, yeah, we trailed this feature in last week's Kerrang! as a chinwag with Metallica guitarist Kirk Hammett and bassist Jason Newsted. But with Jason busy entertaining a few friends, it's only Kirk and I who eventually get together to talk band business. We're in a San Franciscan coffee house on a Wednesday evening. Kirk is looking relaxed, at ease with life, especially life in the studio. For the uninitiated, Metallica are holed up in San Francisco recording their sixth LP with producer Bob Rock. Last week, they took a break to play a rather big gig at Donington. There's a comfort and solidarity in everything we're doing in the studio, says Kirk Sipping Tea. We're all in this together. We're comfortable with Bob and we're all very clear with our roles in this album. One wonders how much this newly established comfort has to do with the more relaxed way in which Metallica operate, specifically Lars and James doing most of the heavy duty day-to-day -day work. Nowadays, I think those guys are more comfortable with me throwing ideas towards the songs. We all write music and the best parts are cherry picked, but now more than ever before the guys are open to what I write, which in itself gives me more confidence in suggesting things about arrangements or adding creative flourishes. What that does is inspire me or maybe inspire Lars or James to take a note on something. Those guys always have a certain vision as to how a song should go. Sometimes that vision is very, very obvious. Other times it isn't so obvious to me. It may end up being something totally different to what I saw. Something that I'd never even thought of before. It's like a musical think tank now, with everybody sitting around a table throwing ideas around. James was very guarded for a long time, but in the past few years he seems to have come out of his shell. He's definitely more open to hearing more ideas. He's more open in every respect. I think that in itself brings a lot more spontaneity into the studio. I mean, there have been moments in the studio where the energy coming off all of us playing the songs together has been so intense and so locked into the groove, with so much attitude, that Bob Rock would say, we could take this track right here off the floor and put it straight on the album, because all you guys played your asses off. Right now, we're very in tune and locked in with each other, and this live in the studio deal works well. This album is much more groove orientated than even the last album. On this album we have songs that swing, we're playing with some boogie, but it still has the crunch, attitude and anger that's embedded in all of us. Kirk leans back in his chair gazing out across the busy San Francisco street life. A lot of it comes from what we learnt touring for all that time for the last album. What we listened to when we came off stage to come down obviously wasn't a lot of heavy metal. It was always something that was very different, blues, jazz, whatever. In James's case there was some country music. It was a real hodgepodge of stuff. We've brought some of those influences to our playing styles and it's working its way into our music so subtly that we've learnt how to use it to our advantage. How much of your newfound calmness in the studio comes from knowing you're a huge band with very little to prove to anyone and no real chance of failing? I think we sit down and tell ourselves that it doesn't matter that we're this really big band, but I know that's something that's always there in the back of our minds, something that we really can't lock out. It does give us some confidence in knowing that we are established, and at the same time, I've been doing this with these guys for 12 years, and there are certain things we know how to do together. We can read each other like books. The whole thing of being one of the biggest bands in the world is nutty because it's so intangible. You can't hold it in your hand, really, can you? No, but you can see it on your walls. 
Yeah, but it really doesn't mean anything in a creative light. We'll do anything to our music that makes it sound better or flow better, as long as it doesn't entail us compromising our music to be more mainstream. We've never done that. We do sometimes compare songs against stuff we've done in the past, but only for a point of reference, not as a quality control thing. How important to you was last summer's US tour and what's now happening with Metallica? When you come off a big tour having lived with someone for over two years, you're gonna get sick of them, let's be honest. I think it's really, really important to have time and space away from a situation. It's an old cliche, but we needed that time away from each other so we could be enthusiastic about working with each other again. I think also from the time off we forgot what we were capable of as a band on stage. I'd forgotten what it was like to share the ups and downs of being on stage with those guys four or five times a week. That's one of the best things about being in the band, going out, having a laugh and having a drink. I think it has all added to the confidence factor of us knowing we can still achieve great things after 12 years. One thing that always comes up whenever you and James are mentioned is how you guys manage to keep your politics out of conversation. Insiders cite Kirk as a liberal and James a republican. We've all had different views on politics and we know that. Lars is really hard to nail down and with me living in the city I'm a total liberal. James has his viewpoints, some of which are valid and some of which I disagree with. I'm sure he'd say the same about me. I think overall we're all much more comfortable in our own spaces, but we do have enough of a definition of who and what we are to be able to move into each other's spaces. I think that's really important. You've ridden through all these years without jealousy of Lars or James and the high profiles they have compared to you. It's just a reality of the situation that Lars and James are the founders of the band. They are the mechanics of the band and my whole outlook is to realise the band sound, which is of itself four people. It's the sound of all of us together. I've never had any problems with the attention paid to them as the chief mechanics. Ultimately, I think we've always wanted the same things for the band, which is to function together and work together and make music together. Lars and James talked last week about how binding touring can become. What's your stance? I'm the wrong person to ask, grins Kirk. I'm the one who always liked to tour. There was one time we had a meeting somewhere on the Metallica album tour and the question was, do we still end on July 4th in Europe or should we play one more set of American dates? Of course, I'd managed to influence Lars into thinking it might be a good idea, but James and Jason thumbed it down. Kirk Hammett, the ultimate road dog. I found myself enjoying the lifestyle, being really mellow, getting really locked into it and I liked the idea that it was making me a better musician, says Kirk fondly. And there's something about the magic between the four of us in Metallica when we're in one space. I cherish it because for whatever happens in my life, that's something that will always be as steady as a rock. Basically, we're heavy metal, aren't we? We made a record, it's so heavy you couldn't get off the turntable. Next up in this week's Kerrang! we have albums. And the album of the week this week is One Hot Minute by Red Hot Chili Peppers. This album is reviewed by Phil Alexander and this gets 5Ks. It's been almost two years in the making and for a while it looked like Hollywood's hottest scenesters were never going to get it finished. Stories of rehab and writer's block suggested that the recording of One Hot Minute was about as comfortable as giving birth to a baby rhino. Then came the death of Chili's China and actor River Phoenix. Thankfully, One Hot Minute proves that these trials and tribulations have only made the peppers stronger. The arrival of Jane's Addiction guitarist Dave Navarro has also added a new dimension to the Chili's brand of fast food punk funk. Navarro's presence punctuates every track here underlying the role of Jane's Addiction as the late 80s godfathers of the American alternative nation. As an album, One Hot Minute sees the Chili's growing up and escaping from their rap metal shackles. If you're looking for a carbon copy of their dance floor filling hit Give It Away, you won't find it here. In fact, play this album once and it'll leave you puzzled. Play it four times and it's clear that it's a more focused if less immediate offering than the cosmic slop of its predecessor blood sugar sex magic. Of course, Flea's bass lines are still irresistibly funky and drummer Chad Smith continues to bang up deceptively cymbal rhythms, but it's frontman Anthony Kiedis who has matured in the most spectacular manner. The artist formerly known as Antoine the Swan has discovered a newfound richer vocal tone. Gone is his patented rap whine, replaced by a lush sense of psychedelic harmonies. Album opener and current single Warped is a good indication of where the chilies are at right now. Both Warped and the album's title track mine a rich psychedelic scene with Navarro's guitars in full effect. The chilies come on like pre-Pearl Jam Seattle grunge fathers, a mother of bone, almost. More obvious is Aeroplane, an infectious piece of chili funk anchored by Flea's furious bass slap. The Kid Croon finale is catchier than a cold in winter. Equally effective are tracks like the straight ahead funkorama of One Big Mob, the furious psych trip of Deep Six, 
the racy spurt of Coffee Shop and the overdriven R&B sass have fallen into grace. All four tracks are proof of the band's ability to rock hard. Where the Chili's really score though is when they mellow out. Walkabout, inspired by all things Aboriginal, is a blissfully tripped out 70s groove tearjerker. It's a string packing bittersweet blues cut. Transcended is a Jekyll and Hyde kind of track with Navarro's percussive guitar work giving way to another massive groovathon. The most poignant moment on the album is the naked ballad My Friends, inspired by the death of River Phoenix. Kida spins a tale of loneliness and friendship to a Beatles-esque backdrop. In fact, the only weak track here is the acoustic silliness of P. Kiedis' repeated kiss-off of So Fucking What is funny for about five minutes. That aside, One Hot Minute sacrifices accessibility for depth and replaces chest-beating bravado with fragile intimacy. As such, it's the Pepper's finest piece of soul food to date. It will feed your head and blow your mind. Uh, man. The next review this week is for an album entitled Frog Stomp by Silverchair. Reviewed by Paul Elliott, this one gets 3Ks. They're 15 for fuck's sake. They're Australian and they sound like a raw Pearl Jam. It's all very weird and it spells big money for the giant Sony corporation who've snapped up Silverchair before the three of them have even reached school leaving age. The hype is already at fever pitch. Silverchair are currently burning a hot trail into the US top 20 with its unbelievably precocious debut album. This is after hitting the top of the Australian charts and they're not even old enough to buy a packet of cigarettes. You'd never know it from listening to the album. Sure, there are traces of naivety, especially in lyrics like If you were abused, find someone to help you. The cringe-worthy line from Shade. But hell, Quentin Tarantino probably wrote some pretty dumb shit when he was 15. Silverchair are light on originality too, but what else could you expect? Don't forget that this is a bunch of vibed-up kids playing for the sheer hell of it. And if these songs are catchy, it's not because Silverchair had an eye on the easy money. You saw the pictures in last week's Kerrang! Silverchair are a bunch of greasy-haired, spotty surf bums in offspring t-shirts. They ain't careerists. It's not hard to figure out um, who Silverchair's heroes are. Guitarist Daniel Johns riffs reek of Pearl Jam and he sings like a horse any better. That said, there are echoes of Metallica here too. The super heavy riff on Fortline owes much to old walrus face Hetfield, while Suicidal Dream is pure downbeat Soundgarden-style grunge noir. Frog Stomp isn't a truly great record next to Vitology or Food Fighters. It's pretty average stuff, but hey, did we tell you that they're still only kids and if they're this good at 15, their third album could be a monster. Just watch them go. The last album reviewed this week is The Gato Hunch by Stanford Prison Experiment. Reviewed by Paul Brannigan, this one gets 4Ks. Out on the mean streets, the alternatives are getting restless. The happy pills are starting to wear off. Where are the new soul rebels to put the snarl and bite back into punk rock? Fear not, salvation is close at hand. Stanford Prison Experiment's self-titled debut album was one of the hardcore highlights of 1994, a tightly wound ball of lurching riffs and clenched fist melodies. The Gato Hunch is even better. Captured in full flow by producer Ted Nicely, the LA Quartet provide the perfect soundtrack to the strife styles of the Piston Infamous. Gato Hunch blends the intensity and dynamics of DC hardcore, the power drill riffing of New York's premier boot boys and California's sharp harmonies. It's harsh and happening. Guitarist Mark Starkey's magic touch is all over the scratch and surge of El Nuevo and the mangled melodies of Can Sando. The rhythm section clamb onto the taut precise grooves of flap and very put out like pit bulls with lockjaw. May as well enjoy the ride. Stanford Prison Experiment have all the qualities necessary to make them major players in the new world disorder. Chart Attack and the number one album this week is still Foo Fighters by Foo Fighters. Number one in the Indie LPs charts, it's still smashed by Offspring and number one in the Singles chart, it's pushed by Moist. The Reader's chart this week comes from MB Death of Jarrow. His chart begins one when Satan rules his world day aside, two pedigree butchery carcass, three plague rages napalm death, four chapel of ghouls morbid angel, five out of mind entombed, six Trifiction, Deicide, 7, Davidian Machine Head, 8, Incarnate Solvent Abuse Carcass, 9, Malfa War Pantera, and 10, Dead by Dawn, Deicide. The Star Tracks this week comes from Lee Markaloo of Terravision. His chart begins 1, Ishikoko Supergrass, 2, King for a Day, 4, for a Lifetime, Faith No More, 3, Duets, Frank Sinatra, 4, Sunburn and Paranoid Skunkadanti, and 5, Wildflowers, Tom Petty. Next week in Kerrang Bank Issues, Donington and Redding 1995. Who rocked? Who flopped? Who passed out in the toilets halfway through the afternoon? The most comprehensive reviews, the most outrageous behind the scenes action and the most breathtaking photographs you'll see. 
an all-star issue featuring Metallica, Soundgarden, Therapy, Green Day, Hole, and a cast of thousands, plus Skunkadancy, Sugar Ray, Iron Maiden, Terrorvision, and tons more. Thank you so much for listening. I got through this episode just about. I am going to go back to unpacking because that is apparently now my life. I'm just looking around and all I can see are bags and boxes and it's giving me a bit of an anxiety attack. <laughs> I need to I need to really crack on and do that. Uh, I hope you all enjoyed this week's issue. Next week will be great. The Donington and Reading 95 reviews. Looking forward to that one. Look after yourselves and have a good week and talk to you all soon. Bye for now. <laughs>